Are your clients asking about the employee retention credit, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, or the work opportunity credit? Do you lack answers or the expertise in your firm to serve these specialty tax incentives? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, TriMerit, later in the episode. I just can't believe that so many firms still bill in arrears for taxes. Right? You're doing all this work throughout the whole year to get a tax return out the door, and you don't charge for it until after it's been filed. You're basically giving a loan to your client of all the costs that you've accumulated to do that return. And it just seems kind of nuts. I mean, you could totally transform a practice without doing anything else just by changing how it bills, just by changing it to a subscription billing. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we had... Such a great interview on Friday with Dr. Josh McGowan from Troy University that we didn't get to any of the news that's been piling up. And so, David, you suggested that we should just do an extra episode this week, clear out our pa- our piles of stories, uh, and I think it's a great idea. So here we are yeah. on Monday. We are, And I promise everybody right now, I'm telling you, I have, I don't know, 25 stories in here, and not one of them is about 150-hour rule. Like, it's all, that's been cleared out. Oh, you promised, David. Okay, good. There's nothing in here. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll let you start then, David, since this was your idea. What are we talking about? So the banking industry over the last decade or so, you know, because they're trying to be better customer service. But you can do a lot of stuff. You just call, and it recognizes your voice. And so you could say your name, say your password, transfer money, Right those types of activities all through your voice. And that was great until this year, now that people can voice clone and recreate things. And so you're starting to see people uh, hack in to bank accounts by Ah. sampling. And it's not even where, Blake, you have to get a full recording of you now. Like it used to be where you'd have to like train the thing. But now somebody could just find a recording of you anywhere. Like, oh, you did a 25-second video, nothing about your bank right? on you know, Facebook, and they just take your voice from there and they can recreate it and log into your bank account. So it's something that we need to probably start watching as this uh, changes over the next year, year and a half here. Or you have a podcast and somebody just samples your voice from 320 episodes of your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Voice authentication. I mean, that's that's crazy because the last few years, I was hearing from cybersecurity experts that the way that you need to defeat these email compromise scams is to have a process where you always do voice authentication, voice confirmation, and now that doesn't work anymore. So I feel like the fraudsters are always one step ahead of us. And I've been thinking about this as when I saw this article because I've I've been saying to accountants like, hey, anytime anybody asks you to change routing numbers, you know, ACH bank numbers, you have to verify it in two places. Like have them give you a phone call and an email. Or not thinking, maybe that's not going to work either. You almost have to have like a private, yes, leave me a voicemail or call me, but you also need to use our private Slack channel or our private, you know, it could be Lysio, whatever, like a private channel for the message mm-hmm. to where you're getting it twice because just telling them to call you doesn't work. Or you have to have a live Zoom call where you physically see them until that gets cloned as well. Mm-hmm. But Well, what do I have this week? I've got a story about the IRS. It's tax season, so we might as well talk about it. And it's good news. 
According to CPA Trendlines, the IRS is processing returns as fast as it gets them. They are at an incredible current rate of 99.8%. So as of February 18th, they had received close to 36 million returns, and they had processed 33, 34 million of them. So that is a big improvement from last year. Uh, so they still haven't quite dug through the entire backlog, but at least it's not adding to the backlog at this point. That's my takeaway from this story. Well, I mean, that's good, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're they're on top of things. And in theory, if they stay if they stay at this pace at the end of tax season, they won't be behind and they'll be able to really start working on the backlog more. That's right. I don't see if that's uh, I, I think this is all good. Do you want to talk a little bit about ESG stuff? Yeah, yeah sure. Why not? Your I next mean, favorite it, soapbox. I'm not a big fan of ESG. I think any of the listeners of this podcast will know my biggest problem with it is that I don't understand how you can combine environmental, social, and governance into a single score. It's like comparing apples, oranges, and pineapples. It doesn't make sense to me. And that's why you have companies like Tesla getting ranked below companies like ExxonMobil, because Tesla has terrible governance, even though it's this amazing electric car company. So what's yeah. the news about what's the news so about ESG? I think that I like five articles, and they all kind of uh, start stacking up. So I'll paste kind of one in here first for you. So the uh, AICPA and Oxford are teaming up on a sustainability program together, and essentially this is a certificate. So it's going to be uh, part of their executive management program uh, program in sustainability for accounting and finance professionals, and it's going to be online classes that are for mid to senior level career roles like CFOs, CEOs, and board members. And if you take the program, you get to get a certificate jointly signed by Oxford and the AICPA and CIMA. Now, this is what the certificate is, right? It will provide candidates with expertise in how sustainability issues affect the organization's ability to create long-term value and the implications for decision-making and resource allocation. Participants will also have the opportunity to understand how to apply their business skills to ESG issues and have a positive impact on an organization's business model. It, it feels very uh, non-accounting for the AICPA to be involved. And just my my short two cents on that. But uh, AICPA is real big on ESG. Oh, they're going very, very, very big. So they had a, they also I'll give you this article here. Okay. They actually had a symposium on ESG, and they were the top level sponsor for this. It's a IFRS sustainability symposium. And they were the – I put the link in. I don't know if you want to switch or not. I'm trying to load it up, but intuitiveaccountant.com oh. doesn't want to load for me. Oh. Let's see. Block. Yeah, well, it's just spinning. Spinning. Okay. Could be a speed of the streaming issue. But essentially, they were the number – AICPA and CIMA were the platinum number one sponsor of this event. Barry Melikon, who's the CEO right, of, of AICPA, he said, goes on to say, uh, sustainability continues to be a strategic key area – for the organization and global accountancy profession as a whole. The development of globally accepted, comprehensive, and robust sustainability disclosure standards will support the transition to more responsible business practices, enhance the reliability of ESG-related disclosures, and place long-term value creation at the heart of corporate activities and reporting. So again, like you said, like with well, the other... It could be a big moneymaker, right, for the big firms, is now you've got additional mandated disclosures, more paperwork, more financial reporting, more footnotes in the financial statements. It's all going to generate money for the big firms. 
is this actually going to improve information for investors, though, is the question. And I haven't really seen, like, we have not seen evidence that ESG in its current form actually helps anyone. Yeah. And there was another article in uh, CPA uh, Practice Advisor that talks about um, ESG reporting. It's common at large co- companies, but there, there's been a study, 86% of the companies use multiple standards and frameworks. Right. So if you have, yeah, you have to have a single standard for reporting this stuff. Otherwise, you can't compare companies. And, yeah. and so far, there's not really, like as far as I know, not really a good standard. And, and, so, and I'm going somewhere with this, right? So if you go to the next article. So this is an article titled um, The Dishonest Accounting about net, or the Dishonest Accounting of Net Zero Emissions. And this article really is specifically about, you know, the greenwashing and the of, you know, carbon credits and the, the evolution of these words and what it means. Mm-hmm. But essentially it gives a really good example of ExxonMobil. And there's three scopes. So ExxonMobil can come out and say we're gonna be green. We're going to be net zero. But they define that there's three scopes of the way this is defined, right? So scope one is actually the physical facility. So you have your refinery, right? They have 21 refineries. That produces pollution or emissions. Scope two is actually to run your refinery, you probably have to burn some fuel or get electricity to run your refinery, right? So that's scope two. Scope three is basically when you drive your gas-powered car, Blake. Yeah. Yeah. They don't count scope three. So, so, so right. They just they they don't they don't even reference it. They don't even claim to get to that for net zero. Right. So this is how ExxonMobil can have a higher ESG score than Tesla because and, Sh- and Chevron. Yeah, they both right because they only they only count their direct emissions right now. So the solution then is to require them to report the scope three emissions, which is all of the upstream and downstream emissions that are part of their product that are a result of fossil fuels. That, and that makes it really hard to count all this. Right. Well, imagine if in in financial reporting, you didn't have to just report on your own numbers, but you had to report on all of your distributors' numbers, right? And all of your customers' numbers. I don't, I don't know how accountants are going to actually be able to do this. Like to get accurate information just seems completely impossible. And so they're going to end up using estimates. And we all know that estimates can just be manipulated. Is this actually going to make the world a greener place? No. Like the, these businesses are just going to keep doing what they're doing. And like you said, they're going to make themselves look good on paper. But like what's really happening in the world? I don't know. I'm not convinced at all. And, and I'm not convinced in this theory that, you know, hey, if we get the, you know, the firms involved, like that's going to, uh, to help with that. But I just pasted another link in here, this last one that's kind of tied to all of this. So this is a long form article. A uh, very long article. This is um, from the International Consortium. Uh, I'll just say this again: the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. It's ICIJ. Huge long article. And article's titled, and Blake has it up right now: "How Auditing Giant KPMG Became a Global Sustainability Leader While Serving Companies Accused of Forest Deconstruction." <laughs> Ooh. And it's so it's a very very long um, article, but they. Long story short is they were issuing reports downplaying – they basically involved the logging industry in Canada, right? And they basically uh, – this company is like $6 billion in annual revenue, so they're big, huge companies. And essentially – Not KPMG, their client? They're, this is the client. This is the client, right? So this investigation had a, a collaboration of 39 media partners and went across borders. 
right? And what they found is year after year, KPMG signed assurance reports, quote unquote, for the project and described as minor non-compliances in instances of logging in protected areas, destruction of wildlife habitat, and decreating water quality. And later on, it goes on to talk about the, uh, not only is it KPMG for these clients, it's also like palm oil companies, uh, illegal uh, deforestation and logging in Indonesia, New Guinea, Malaysia, Cambodia. So it's not just Canada, right, that this is happening at. And they just keep signing off on these reviews. Um, The last little piece in here that was interesting. Yeah. uh, And this has gone on for a very, very long time. So early on, first, just environmentalists cared about this illegal logging that was going on in Canada. Then the consumers eventually wanted to do it. But the uh, logging industry is so powerful that they they basically worked with KPMG to create a study that talked about how much these regulations would increase the cost. And then when it was all said and done to come up with these new standards, somehow KPMG got on the board to write these new standards. So this like notion that, oh, as accounting firms get involved in this ESG and environmental protection stuff, it's going to make it better. There's there's a history of 20 years of it proving not true, right? If you really if you go into this article and read the whole thing, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to say about that, David. <laughs> no. Other than that, it's, it's, it's not you know, a good it look. Right? It's me. not a good look, right? For for KPMG, <laughs> no. Well, and that's the thing is is I mean, McKinsey I think is the one that gets um, periodically raked over the coals in the press for you know basically assisting these companies that are doing terrible things globally and, and helping them and do that. And, you know, the big four are also part of that with their consulting teams as well. It, it's, they're just, they'll work for anyone. You know, if, you, if you've got money to pay them, they'll figure out how to, how to make the horrible things you're doing uh, often, you know, seem not so bad, right? That's their job. And sometimes they're just in there temporarily, right? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to help you solve this problem you, you paid us to solve yeah. with no long-term, like we're solving for your problem right now today with no long-term point of view. Uh, Well, hey, since we're speaking about the big four, I thought this was a uh, interesting story. You know, uh, big four accountants are pretty smart and the leaders of the big four are pretty smart, but sometimes they make bad decisions. Uh, And Deloitte's CEO in Australia was recently the victim of a fraudster, or I guess the alleged victim of a fraudster, although he's acknowledged that it happened. So I don't think it's alleged anymore. Uh, basically, what happened is that Adam Powick, or Powick, CEO of Deloitte in Australia, admitted he invested in a scheme run by former partner Amberjit Endow, who is now in, under investigation, but said he did so in a personal capacity and never authorized the use of his name to promote the scheme. In so, an, so it's not a random criminal. It was a former partner. Right, a former Deloitte person. partner, yes. In an email sent to Deloitte partners on Thursday afternoon, uh, Mr. Powick said he took full accountability for my personal investment decisions and the outcomes associated with these decisions. He also wrote that he had never encouraged anyone else to be a part of this investment. The stunning admission comes after reports that Mr. Endow, a former senior Deloitte partner who worked at the firm for more than 13 years, had allegedly stopped communicating with at least some investors around December, causing them to worry that they will be unable to recover their money. So, yeah, anybody can be a victim of fraud. <laughs> so if, he's saying he put money into this and was a victim of it, but he's, he's, he went out of his way to say, I did not encourage anybody else to put their money in this. Right, right. But his name was oh. being used, apparently, by this former partner to get more oh, investors. Oh, got it, got it. He, right. he, was, he, was, he was exploiting the fact that he yeah. put some money in. Okay. So this is, we'll, we'll see. 
So this company, you know, it's classic fraud kind of situation. They were offering high returns for money that would be issued to purchase bonds relating to ongoing infrastructure spending by the Indian government. And get this, they were promising up, uh, promising 39% interest over six months, right? That's better than Bitcoin. I mean, it's, it's insane, right? <laughs> oh, and it also, uh, there was a, an investment document that the Australian uh, the Financial Review saw that said that uh, there was, quote, the investment represents a zero risk profile. So 39% interest, zero risk profile. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter who the person is. If you see that, you don't trust it, right? Uh, anything above 8%, I guess I don't trust at this point. <laughs> it's, if it's too good to be true, it is, right? Yeah, completely. Um, I what's have next? It's not big four, but big 10. Okay. <laughs> so I don't even know if we mentioned it when we were doing the interview or not, but did you see that the uh, Armenino's Bitcoin team or crypto team has left Armenino and started a whole new firm. Yeah, because Armenino shut that down right after yeah. after everything went south. So with that, so it's actually called thenetworkfirm.com, and it's a brand new accounting firm, basically, really focused on digital assets. So and these are the guys that are going to be doing those attestation reports that provide no actual assurance, but then you know the the crypto companies use them to say that oh we, we've got the assets to back up our depositors. But without yeah. without any liabilities being audited. Now, what's interesting is they say that this firm was founded earlier this year. It's based in Miami, but how it, it feels pretty finished. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, was this something that was like a backdoor they were planning the whole time? You know, like, hey, just in case this doesn't go well, we can still try to grab some of this money from from these crypto companies. But this way, we can, we can separate Armenino from the risk, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Trimerit. It seems like every week a new questionable ERC mill pops up, offering small businesses a way to get $26,000 from the government for each one of their employees. I've seen Twitter ads, Facebook ads, ads in podcasts, ads on Instagram, ads on TV shows, and I've even been cold called by one of these companies when I was recording an episode of this very podcast. These questionable ERC mills are coming hard after your clients. If they haven't reached them already, they will soon. And based on the stories I've been hearing from accountants, the IRS will be soon reaching out to them too. This is why when it comes to ERC, it's important to have the right people, the right process, and the right partner. Introducing Trimerit. Trimerit is a team of CPAs, engineers, and attorneys that function as an extension of your tax advisory team. They can help your clients with ERC, R&D tax credits, cost segregation, energy credits or deductions, and work opportunity credit. And working with them is easy as one, two, three. One, they offer a no-cost feasibility analysis. Two, they document all tax incentive studies to ensure your client meets all requirements. Three, they offer audit representation to ensure your clients aren't left hanging if audited by the IRS. To learn more about adding Trimerit to your team, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Trimerit. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-R-I-M-E-R-I-T. Here's a report, survey report by Accounting Today, cast by the numbers. And there are some good charts in here that we could take a look at. So Accounting Today does an annual report on CAS, Client Accounting Services, the fancy name for what is essentially bookkeeping and accounting on an outsourced basis by public accounting firms. 
uh, or it could be non-accounting firms, could just be consulting firms, uh, but they focus on on the accounting firms. Uh, and they, there's always great data in here around the growth of CAS, uh, double-digit growth. So the median growth rate for top-performing CAS practices is 16%, projected growth rate annually of 15%, which is really, really strong and has been going on for years and years now. Right, which is why CAS a few years ago surpassed 10% of all revenues in firms and is now you know, probably way above that. Uh, how do CAS practices describe themselves? Only 43% of CAS practices actually use the term client accounting services, uh, which goes to this problem with the whole branding of CAS and the meaning of it. Like when I talk about it, I always have to define it because it's not a common definition, right? Fewer than half yeah. of firms are actually using the term. 17% are using another name with outsourced in it. So they're calling it outsourced something or other. Yeah. 16% are using another name with advisory in it. So they're calling it advisory something. Now, 13% define CAS as client advisory services instead of client accounting services. 7% use the term CAAS. So they're, they're mixing like them the together. The double A's. The double, the double A's. A. And then 7% use another name with CFO in it. That's how but, they But the it. double A's, is that for accounting advisory services, client accounting advisory services? Is that the double A? Yes, accounting client advisor? accounting and advisory services. Okay. So you, I, I think. They, <laughs> so when you are branding your practice and you're doing CAS or whatever we call it, just know you have flexibility because there is no uh, agreed upon definition of what that means. But if you're going to choose something, you might as well choose client accounting services because that's the least confusing thing. Well, we'll really try to figure out what to name it. Like That feels very inside, but name it what the consumers are calling it or your customers are calling it, right? And they're probably more than likely is, will you do my QuickBooks? Mm-hmm. Right. We do my accounting, right? They're going to use the word accounting, right? Or they mean bookkeeping, but try to figure out what they're calling it and don't call it something else. Right. Now, how much money are practices making from CAS? Last year, the top performers earned just over $2 million in net client fees for CAS services. Now, that's double all respondents who earned, on average, a $1 million. So, the top performers are making twice as much money in terms of net client fees. They are also making almost twice as much in median net client fees per professional. The top performers earned 231,000 per professional. All respondents, it's 121,000. So now, do you think the discrepancy here, Blake, is people that their firm only does CAS are these 2 million and the ones that are maximizing the money per employee, or is it just like, firms that do lots of stuff happen to have a really great cast division? Like, what's your gut instinct on this? I don't know. I mean, it could be pricing. It could be efficiency. It could be offshoring. It's probably a combination of all those things. I'm going to guess that if you're just doing cast on an hourly basis, you're probably in that lower revenue per employee um, number. Because, um, you know, if you think about it, the traditional firm structure is like a third, a third, a third. So you aim to, you know, your employees get a third of the revenue. You allocate a third of the revenue to your employees. A third goes to like overhead, and then a third goes to profit in an ideal world. And so that that lower revenue per professional would kind of fit with that, 
right? If you're paying your employees like 40 to 50K to do CAS work, and then, you know, or, or maybe more, the profit margin might be a lot lower in those firms. It's hard to say. But if you don't price hourly and you price fixed fees based on the value you're delivering, then you can earn $231,000 per professional because it's not linked to the amount of hours that they can bill in the day. But we've also talked about like it maybe is okay to take make less on your cash practice and use that as a way to have a super efficient tax practice on the on the backside. So the context of that number I think is a little hard to see. Now, where do um, the clients come from? The top lead sources for top performing cash practices, seventy nine percent are getting their clients from existing tax clients, and this is why if you're a really good cash practice, if that's what you lead with, you can acquire tax practices and you can sell client accounting services to those tax clients that never got them before. And that's a really good strategy for growth is acquire these traditional tax practices, take the clients who need CAS, roll them into your practice. You could do the tax too, and then you get rid of the ones who only want tax returns. Because basically firms are out there just pumping out business returns and they've never paused once and said to the client, why don't we just, instead of being this big mess at the end of the year, why don't we just handle your bookkeeping for mm-hmm. you all year and their return will be faster? Yeah. Now, interestingly, um, 60% are getting clients from external referrals. I don't know if this is 60% or if this is like the top source. I think this might be the top source. It's not clear from the chart. But so, so the next most popular source of clients is external referrals, then converting traditional bookkeeping accounting clients then existing non-tax clients. And the last one is the website. Only 24% get their, only 24% have their website as their top lead source. So- uh, That's not good. Well, I mean, it just shows you like this, this makes sense, right? This is not surprising to me because most, most traditional accounting firms um, get their clients from, you know, cross-selling within the firm if they're big enough or referrals. Right, it's only the really you know startup style firms that are doing really good marketing, really good content that are getting the most of their clients from their website. What are the most common offerings for all respondents? Ten ninety nines, financial statement prep, CFO slash controller advisory services, accounts payable, sales tax returns, consulting, which includes financial planning slash modeling, and then forecasting slash budgeting. Those are all over eighty percent. 98% of top performers offer tax services in combination with CAS. Let's talk about CAS staff allocation across service lines. Uh, the top performers, 57% of them have staff that are dedicated to CAS only, whereas with all respondents, it's 41%. So if you want to have a top performing CAS practice, you should be ded- dedicating staff to just that, which makes sense, right? If they're split- like treated as a true business unit. Exactly. Staff yeah. a team, yeah, yeah, and the 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 not the top four performers are more likely to have those cast staff support other services. Much more likely. Number of general ledger programs used. I should have had you guess this one, David, but it's already on the screen. The plurality of firms use two general ledger programs. That's thirty six percent. Only twenty one percent use one, and the rest all use three or more. So I guess if you add those numbers together, what, 21% plus 36%, that you're at 57%, right? So that means that, you know, 
43% are using three or more general ledger programs in their practice. To yeah, me, I wonder how, the, like yeah. how people think about QuickBooks. Do they count QuickBooks Desktop, QuickBooks Online as two, right? It, this feels like the right distribution to me. I, I do think once you get past two or three, you really can't scale this in your firm, right? It's a little difficult to have multiple GLs. Oh, yeah. Well, the training becomes really difficult, right? Yeah. And the process automation and all that, uh, you, you want to avoid it if at all possible. But it's interesting because we just did that webinar uh, with The Grove where we had Hector Garcia and Amanda Aguilar on talking about Zero versus QuickBooks. Yeah. And the, the whole debate was really around which one do you choose? But it turns out that only one in five firms is doing one GL. The rest all have two or more. So it might be maybe for a follow-up to that, we should do a webinar on, you know, why should you just choose one or, or should yeah, you? I, I don't know. I, I lean towards, because I've talked to enough like accounts and bookkeepers now where like there's a more maturity, more mature view. Like it doesn't have to be so black and white because it's a lot of work to move somebody off of QuickBooks to zero or off of zero to QuickBooks, right? Or, you know, off of Zoho books onto QuickBooks. When in the end, if they're using apps and all these add-ons, you're kind of getting to the same spot. But at the same time, I think the other piece of this is market size. And I think Hector talked about this a lot with QuickBooks. Like, I I, I forgot. I, there was a, a zero firm I met maybe eight years ago, and they were strong zero only. And I think they were for law firms. And they finally, maybe about three years ago, started taking on QuickBooks clients instead of telling QuickBooks people no or migrating them. And they and within a year and a half, their QuickBooks business was bigger than all their zero clients hmm. because they stopped saying no. And so, yeah, the not supporting two is really you're just you're just telling customers you don't want their business. Ultimately, I think it's a good idea. Christopher has joined us in the live stream. Thanks for hopping on, Christopher. We didn't schedule this. We just went live, and we've got a few folks listening in. Christopher says, add bookkeeping to your tax clients. Now you're charging for CAS and such an easier sell. I agree. Roll the tax in. You actually can offer the tax included in the CAS. That's how I would do it, um, is sell the client accounting services. We're going to be your outsourced accounting department. And as long as you are a client of our CAS team, we will do your tax return for free. So lead with that. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. Lead for free. Free taxes. Right. And and it, it it's really hard to get a traditional firm to buy into that when you've always sold the tax return. And the tax return has always been way more expensive than the bookkeeping work. We're flipping the script here, right? But the clients actually see having the access to the accounting and the tax team as more valuable than the tax return itself. So you're selling the value of having this team. And the beauty of it too is that when you're not selling the tax return, if the client leaves, you aren't responsible for any work on the taxes after they leave. So you make you just, par- you just close that one month you're on and see yeah, you later. Well, it's like if you leave in March and your tax return hasn't been filed yet, we're not filing in April, right? Or if you leave in in you know we've extended you and you leave in July, we're not filing that return. Like we're no longer responsible. We're only responsible for the returns that are filed while you're a client, and that creates stickiness right? And it's a lot harder for somebody to go out there and replace their bookkeeper and their tax advisor at the same time. This is what I'm seeing the the leading firms do is fix monthly fee, throw in the tax work. Uh, But you have to change how you look at your firm. If you you view them in silos, you can't do it, right? So you got to view it holistically. 
But you've talked about that, about the way Apple came in and he got rid of all these dividers between the business units and just worried about yeah. the one Apple dollar figure. Exactly. Right. Steve Jobs did not view the App Store as a separate line of business. They view it as part of the whole iPhone business, which is true, right? You can't have the App Store without the iPhone. So why would you look at it separately trying to measure in terms of profit? Old, old cost accounting. Yeah, allocating costs to all these different departments, giant waste of time, at least in his view. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. Anita Coimler, one of the founders of LiveFlow, was telling me about a small business owner who was complaining that his accountant didn't do any cash flow projections with him, causing his business to take an unwanted loan just to keep the doors open. I wanted to learn more and understand from this business owner about what his accountant did or didn't do for him, so I attempted to set up a Zoom call with him. This was his reply, and I quote, I would be happy to review this further, but at a later time. Due to our cash flow problems, the problems are already here, and I have to solve this crisis before I can plan, unfortunately. End quote. It makes me wonder how many other small businesses are currently struggling with cash flow crisis and their accountants aren't helping them. If you're not helping your clients with cash flow, stop what you're doing and go sign up for LiveFlow right now. Grab one of the LiveFlow cash flow forecast templates and connect your client's QuickBooks online data. You and the client will be able to see real-time money movements, have important cash flow conversations, and make impactful business decisions quicker rather than later. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Hey, I wanted to share a, a tweet from a listener. Ryan Elbline, CPA, said, Hey, Cloud Accounting Podcast, I just started listening to this week's episode, and IMO, one reason you don't see more young CPAs at conferences is cost. I'm a new solo firm owner and would love to go to Engage, but I can't justify the 5K all-in cost. And we've talked about this before, right? The cost of some of these conferences is really high like the the Engage Conference, Digital CPA Conference, it excludes a lot of the younger professionals and and the staff too, right? Only the firm owners can afford to go. I, I wish they would figure out how to bring the cost down. You I mean, know? they're doing some some virtual type stuff, but I mean, I, I get it. Like by the time you get your hotel and your food and your airfare, it does get expensive, but the ticket, just the ticket to go is still right. pretty pricey for this. Just to get yeah. into the conference is very yeah. pricey. I mean, we're talking over a thousand dollars a ticket, maybe more, maybe two. It could be thousands, right? Yeah. And so, compare that though to like QuickBooks Connect or to ZeroCon, where the ticket might be a hundred dollars. Yeah, three hundred, right? six hundred. Yeah. yeah. So, if we want to get, there's got to be a way to do this, right? Like, bring the cost down. If you are, you know, if you fit certain criteria, charge less. They, they should charge more. If you're a big firm, you can afford it. You pay more. If you're a small firm, you to pay subsidize. less. It's like first class, right? Yeah. They, they're subsidizing the seats for the rest of the plane. Because this goes back to what I think you nailed on like Sage, right? And their their accountants program. It's super expensive. You can't get in. But over here, they're talking about inclusion and diversity with their other hand. I guarantee you AICPA Engage is going to have 30 sessions on diversity and inclusion. That's going to be dropped all the time, probably in keynotes. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, there's a lot of people outside looking in and right, to like actually make it inclusive by learning, figuring out how to do it for a lower price point. We also got an email from D. Hall, 
about accounting and finance as a percentage of revenue, this idea of, which we talked about on recent episodes, this idea of pricing your services as a percentage of revenue, or it could be percentage of expenses of your client. And I always use this method as a gut check. I didn't actually price this way when I had my firm, but I would use my complicated pricing matrix. And then in the end, I would see, all right, what is this as a percentage of their revenue or expenses, whichever is greater. And I would try to get it to come out to between one and 2%. That was like the right number for the mix of services that I was offering. And uh, so D Hall wrote us an email and he said, here's a link to this CFO article called the cost to perform the finance function metric of the month. And so if we go here and look at this chart, we see that the total cost to perform the finance function as a percentage of revenue ranges from point, uh, 1.6% at the high end and 0.56% at the low end. So between half a percent and you know 1.6% is, is the range of like, that's the total cost of the finance function in-house at a company, according to CFO.com survey. So if you think about this, if you're providing outsourced accounting services, you are taking on the role of that finance function in at, at, at your firm, right? You're doing that for them so they don't have to hire people. So you should be charging at least this much, right? If you're charging we, less- We've talked about this before. So how much is it going to cost them to do it themselves? Whatever it might be, we've right. priced our own services we've provided and, you know- it could cost somebody 50 grand a year to do this in-house, to do bookkeeping. So so if you're charging less than you know 0.56%, you're basically giving away too much, right? I would say that we should be on the top end, right? 2%, if, if you're, especially if you're replacing the finance function for a company, like you're doing like CFO advisory services, you probably should be at 2% or more. And then I would say up to 5% because that's what, business managers charge for celebrities and athletes is the standard amount is about 5%. Uh, and I know that from my personal experience working in LA, where business management is this whole big thing. There's entire firms that just do business management, and they take 5% of revenue. Uh, so that would be the high end. And then the low end, right? Maybe a percent. It could be in that range. Um, so, so should apps so, like Carbon and uh, I'm thinking like Go Proposal and... Uh, uh, practice ignition or ignition should apps like that just in the same way when i go to a coffee place square and all these point of sales have these tip buttons that are all like way inflated like now the tip buttons start at 22 percent right and they have a little like should should it be where these these apps themselves just have the base the base already starts at 1.6 percent of revenue like they just the, the apps themselves kind of make it the default standard of 1.6 you can it's yeah. really hard to not do 1.6 well, it would be really neat if you could connect your client's file into these systems that are generating proposals, and then it would give you all the metrics that you need to generate a quote. Like, There's no reason technically they can't do it. There's how many transactions do they have in the bank account? How many bank accounts? How many bills? How many employees in the payroll system? How much revenue? How much expenses? How many accounts in the chart of accounts? All this stuff that we use to design proposals to try to figure out what's the scope of this. If they pull it in, then we could, you know, generate proposals very quickly. That would really help. And technically, uh, there's there's no reason no app, an app can't do that. Yeah. I mean, QuickBooks Online already does it. When you connect your client, they give you those numbers. And I've seen other apps give you those numbers, but not the pricing apps and proposal apps. 
So it's a good idea. So in back to our listener email. Yeah. D Hall said, for me, bookkeeping only usually starts with one point two percent. Based on the level of services, accounting slash CFO and industry, it could go up to three percent, not including payroll slash HR slash purchasing slash pricing. So his range is one point two to three percent. The overall goal is to discuss the plan with the client, how to reduce the accounting slash finance burden in ratio as a percentage of revenue. Some clients take on high-risk contracts, have complex tax slash nexus issues, or have a greater burden for accounting due to audit or compliance. There may also be additional costs due to scaling up or new technology integration, or like almost every new client, have a lot of cleanup work to do. Having the client aware of their burden of their choices is always best and allows for easier discussions on pricing while creating a boundary for the level of services we are providing. The scope cannot be unlimited. The IRS has also stated that all businesses must establish a level of risk and reward. Having unlimited scope of work that some accounting firms do would break this test, especially as the IRS begins cracking down on solo practitioners slash contractors versus employees. For startups or rapidly growing organizations that do not have historical revenue, an annual budget can be created based on the goals of the company or projected to break even plus margin. I think so that's imagine a, going back yeah. to tying this back to the other thing about offering tax for free, right? If if you maybe you're you're charging two thousand dollars for a tax return, but if you can move them from two percent to three percent on their cash services, like the the monthly bookkeeping services, that might be an extra two grand a month for your firm. Right, so you just hey, we'll toss in your if you, if you, if you buy this level package right at three percent, mm-hmm. we'll throw in your personal tax return for free, and yeah. you but you're you're basically getting that revenue every single month for not that much more more work. I, I just can't believe that so many firms still bill in arrears for taxes. Right, you're doing all this work throughout the whole year to get a tax return out the door, and you don't charge for it until after it's been filed, you're basically giving a loan to your client of all the costs that you've accumulated to do that return. And it just seems kind of nuts. I mean, you could totally transform a practice without doing anything else just by changing how it bills, just by changing it to a subscription billing Who did you tell me was like, somebody's like the big darling, and I don't even know what firm it was, and essentially... That was ninety nine percent of the success just by doing that one change. And I forgot who you were you were you were telling me about. Oh, that was um, Jody uh, Grundon. Yeah, who just sold his practice um, for I think bundles and bundles of money. Yeah, I mean, he talks about how they did two things mainly: they added CFO services to their mix, and they did subscription billing on a weekly basis for all of their CFO advisory clients, and they only do. CFO work. Like if, if you don't hire them to be their, your CFO, they won't work with you. So you can't just buy tax. You can't just buy bookkeeping. At least that's my understanding of it. I could be wrong on that, but that's what it sounded like. And then, yeah, you can, you, you basically throw in everything into one bill, uh, but the siloed practice doesn't work that way. You have to combine all this. And, and so like the, the traditional practice management software, they don't even let you do something like that because everyone's tracking their hours and all the hours have to get allocated to, you know, a return or to a bookkeeping engagement. You know, I suppose you could, you could work it by just creating one engagement that includes everything and everyone just bills time to that. But at that point you might as well just say like, well, who cares anymore about the time? (laughs) Right. Stop tracking. Just work on the the returns and stop tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to do app news? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Patriot. 
Patriot Software creates accounting and payroll software that radically simplifies the day-to-day -day complexities that American businesses and their accountants face. Patriot is seamlessly integrated under one login, easy to use, and affordable. And they make number one for ease of use, customer support features, and value for the money by users. Patriot's accounting software is a cloud-based, full-featured accounting general ledger that gives your clients the simplicity they need, but the power you require. Patriot has a patented dual-ledger accounting, so you can quickly switch between cash basis, modified cash basis, or accrual accounting, and a chart of accounts that can have unlimited sub-accounts and nest up to eight accounts deep. Patriot's payroll software lets you run payroll in three easy steps offers free two-day direct deposit, and their full-service payroll offers a tax filing guarantee. Accounting professionals can partner with Patriot and receive discounted pricing that increases as you add more clients, support located in the USA, free co-branding, and free accounting and payroll for your firm. To join thousands of accounting professionals who trust Patriot with their clients' accounting and payroll and to get a 30-day free trial, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Patriot. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash P-A-T-R-I-O-T. You have other any other non-app stuff? Yeah, no, let's get let's get more into apps. Uh, I just put a link in. Uh, I think this was kind of big news. You tweet, uh, tweeted about it. I think I saw that Intuit is saying goodbye to QuickBooks desktop point of sale. Yes, that's huge. They're, they're sunsetting it, and it's not that long from now. It's like this year in October. Very quick. Yeah. And well, I'm waiting for the article to load on intuitiveaccountant.com. I don't know what's up with their website, but it's like taking <laughs> forever to load. But the thing that really struck me as problematic for people who use QuickBooks point of sale desktop, and we should just say QuickBooks point of sale because there is no cloud version, is that they're sunsetting all the connected services too. So it basically makes the point of sale unusable without the connected services for a lot of businesses, right? Like if you can't charge credit cards, if you can't update inventory. Yeah, they have a, they have a gift card service. Yeah, um, it, it basically, it's done. And so what are all these businesses going to do? They're using QuickBooks point of sale. They have to switch. So David, does Intuit have a solution for those people? I mean, so... The way I read this article is the, the they're announcing that they're going to um, offer an alternative point of sale from Shopify. So they partner with Shopify. They partner with Shopify, and they have a early release of this integration with QuickBooks Desktop. Um, I, I don't know. I, I see this, and here 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 here's my take on this at a high level. You know, Intuit kills their point of sale to get in bed with Shopify. And Shopify is like, hell yeah, all right, this is great. Because of that, we're not going to release a general ledger, which I've been saying Shopify is going to build a general ledger, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, this also kind of, um, you know, square or block. Now it forces them to figure it, like the, the cards on them now. Because either I still believe Shopify or block or square was going to launch, launch a general ledger, right? And so now I could see this like scratch your back stuff. Who knows? Like, we don't know the real conversations that went down, mm -hmm. but it's mighty convenient, right? That yeah. Shopify now gets to be the point of sale for QuickBooks desktop. So, um, so here's the services that are turning off the connected ones: QuickBooks point of sale payments, the credit card service, Mobile Sync, Store Exchange, e-commerce integration with Webgility, support plans including live support and the vendor lookup service. All gone. 
So we've already heard chatter in the communities that we're in, at least I have, of you know, accountants who have clients on point of sale now looking for help getting them off of it and getting them onto something else. So uh, if, if, if you want to get a lot of business really fast and you've got capacity in your firm, I would say spin up a service and a web page on your site all about helping businesses switch from QuickBooks desktop point of sale to Shopify and, and like offer it to other firms that don't have capacity to do it. Great consulting opportunity. Jump on this. I wish Intuit released some numbers because I have not seen a QuickBooks desktop point of sale in the wild in years. And this could just be like the rip the bandaid off because it's just like a slow death that's been happening for a very long time. The one thing I don't like about this is Intuit already half tried to do this before. So they partnered with Revel. Revel is a big restaurant point of sale. A lot of you have probably seen it when they they were one of the first ones where the waiter or waitress could come up and charge your credit card at the table. They take your order on the little tablet hanging off their, their hip pouch there. And they were going to take that, rebrand it as QuickBooks point of sale for online, basically. Mm-hmm. And I th- they wound up killing the whole agreement after two years because, A, it was good for restaurants, but not good for products. So they kind of that caused a bunch of problems. And then B, I don't think Revel um, ever uh, treated Intuit customers, accountants, uh, the developers in the same way Intuit treated them. So there was always like a cultural issue going on. So there is some risk of this. Like, like is this, it doesn't sound like it's going to be white labeled, but it's always where is the grass greener? Maybe not. You know, we'll see where this goes. I mean. Really, though, if you have to get rid of your desktop point of sale, it's wide open now, right? You're going to look at everybody. This could actually mm-hmm. indirectly drive people to Square. It could. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and Square, we know, is building their own general ledger. Yeah. We we heard that from a listener and who has access to that information. And uh, so that's that's very – I'm very excited for that. I wonder when that's going to happen. That's going to give QuickBooks a run for its money and zero. The AICPA – and CPA.com announced their new startup accelerator cohort for 2023. Let's see who is in the cohort. We've got four impact data. This is the first ever knowledge as a service business guidance system that equips CPA firms to be the strategic partner their business clients need. It's a client advisory platform built around analytics and AI cloud technology and includes industry best practices, proactive alerts, and benchmarking across clients. There's also Audit Site. This is a platform that reduces manual work for auditors, due diligence, and private equity providers by automating financial tra- transaction verification. The solution automates the audit testing process and generates gas compliant work papers. There's also Cinder. Cinder is a sponsor of the podcast. Sponsor. Uh, they are a business intelligence platform for CFOs and accounting professionals that automates repetitive tasks around multi-source e-commerce data and translates it into insights for business. So basically take your e-commerce data and get it into your general ledger in a, in a way that isn't a giant mess, right, David? Yep. There's also Tax Plan IQ. This is a solution that automates various aspects of a tax planning engagement from selling the plan to implementing tasks throughout the year. And they also provide educational resources videos, checklists, templates of 100 tax strategies. And the last one is Verify IQ. It's a Vancouver-based company that offers solutions to augment workflow and customer relationship management systems to make bookkeeping more efficient, including a practice management solution that automates quality control reviews. 
and a tool that enables sales teams to scope a potential client's books. Okay, so this is what I couldn't remember when we were just talking about tools that pull in client data or prospect data so that you can scope an engagement. Verify IQ does this. So you connect the tool to QuickBooks. Um, I don't know if they do zero. You connect it to the GL and then they pull in all that information. So you can scope the books, see what's wrong, right? See what you have to fix. And then also they do quality control, helps you do quality control on the clients you're, you're, you are managing. So are the accounts reconciled, right? Like you don't have to go into each file to do that. Um, and I know that Acuity is using this tool now to do quality control. They actually give it to the bookkeepers and the bookkeepers can use the tool to make sure that they did everything. It's like a double check. Yeah, there's uh, one of the very first apps that were launched on QuickBooks Online. We first did the App Store was a, it had a bad name. It was called Audit My Books, but it kind of did this. But it was, it, the, the name wasn't good, right? Because <laughs> nobody wants to get a product that says Audit My Books. Verify is a much better name. So the I, I think the instinct is there's a product here. Um, and so we'll be interested yep. to see where it goes. But I like the idea, like you said, tying it back to your quoting and your pricing. So those are all the new, that's the latest cohort of the AICPA and CPA.com accelerator. What do they get for being in that? They get a $25,000 grant, but the the real value is they get a booth space at the AICPA Engage conference in Las Vegas. And I believe some of the other conferences that AICPA puts on, like Digital CPA, they can get into that. So if you're a software company and you want to get in front of the attendees at Engage or at Digital CPA or anything else the AICPA puts on, that's why you apply to this program is because they have a booth for CPA.com and you can come to that booth. So congratulations to all those apps. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. Intuit, I just put the LinkedIn. Intuit also announced a cohort of startups. So Intuit announced that they have a cohort of Toronto startups in a startup accelerator program. Now, what's interesting about this is because they're playing this up as part of, you know, Intuit, we've talked about this before, the prosperity zones, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and, and they're trying to, and I think like one's in like West Virginia and one's in Michigan. I was shocked that they kind of roll Toronto into that because I feel like Toronto historically, like a lot of the biggest apps in the cloud accounting space come out of Toronto. Toronto's so pretty prosperous. That this is, yes, being rolled in there. But uh, they have a couple... Um, apps, and we'll just kind of go through them quickly. So they have something called Carbon Hound, which is uh, simplifies your carbon management by consolidating your measurement and reduction and offset and marketing services in one place for your carbon, right? They have something Net Now, which is interesting. It's a buy now, pay later, checkout platform for B2B transactions, focusing on the construction industry. So which makes a lot of sense because a lot of the times, if you're doing your job being paid by your client progress billing, how can you pay for all your materials, Right until you, you get that next payment. So uh, buy now, pay later is very interesting for that. They have a uh, real estate platform called Reequity Homes, um, which basically helps people do like rent to own programs. And they have Spruce, which is an AI loan origination decisioning software that can collect, analyze, underwrite, and monitor small business data. That one I probably is the one Intuit's probably betting on the most. What's it because called? Because Intuit obviously is in the, they want to give small business loans. What's and that one they called? Did have, uh, Spruce, S P R U C E. So, what do they get for being part of this? Yeah, what do they get? Good question. It's an equity-free program in which selected startups benefit from mentorship on product and business innovation toward advancing financial prosperity for consumers, small businesses, and the self-employed. 
So I guess it's it's like yeah, Intuit will mentor them. They'll use Intuit design thinking, design for delight, pursue other is business of mentorship. That's what it is. So so they're not they're not making investments. They're basically giving them access to Intuit experts to help them raise money, raise money yeah. to help them design their product. I just thought it was interesting. They both basically announced that the same day. Now this yeah. was part of Intuit Canada, though it wasn't just Intuit overall. So uh, Revolut, Neobank Revolut, we've talked about plenty of times in the past. But I don't know if you've like, been monitoring them lately. They have been having a hard time getting out their uh, 2021. Now, this is from the UK, so they say accounts, but I would say like year-end financials right, for 2021. Mm-hmm. And BDO has raised concerns about the or completeness of 477 million pounds of revenues in the long-delayed 2021 accounts. They were unable to verify the 477 million pounds of revenue and said the company's IT systems meant that there was a risk and that the bulk of revenues were material misstated, materially misstated. So Wait, the this, bulk? The bulk of the revenues? Bulk of its revenues, yes. Wow. And apparently they were struggling. Um, the reason there was such a delay on these is the audit team were unable to get a complete picture of some of the company's revenues. And they had to revert to verifying cash balance, cash balances and cash in clients' accounts as a result. So not just like how much cash you have. They had to go to each client's uh, individual ledgers to figure out how much cash was, was there. I mean, that's really scary. Like this is a bank, right? I mean, they're a neobank. But they're, they're trying to be a bank, yeah. They're, they're yeah, trying to be a yeah. bank. And, and you're saying that BDO, Reuters is saying that BDO was not able to independently verify three quarters of the... 636 million pounds of revenue. And they've been pushing them since 2020. That's for 2021. Yes. Wow. And they they found in 2020, and they were pushing them then, that there was an acceptably high risk of material misstatement. And then the Revolut's chief CFO was quoted that at the very bottom. Oh, good. Well, I was just wondering, like, how is it possible that BDO in their annual report could say that the financial statements gave a quote, true and fair view of the state of the group, unquote, although it warned that some information may be quote, materially misstated, unquote. Like, (laughs) but if they can't independently verify three quarters of the 765 million US dollars of revenue, like how can they say that it's fair and true and fair? I just, I, that's crazy to me. Sorry, go ahead, David. Oh no. And then my mind, my mind is exploding out of my head right now. And the quote from the CFO is like, ah, they've uh, remediated it and, quote, unquote, I think we're basically there. <laughs> it doesn't give me a lot of confidence. I think we're basically there. I think the, we're this, basically the CFO, there. The CFO is, I think we're basically there. We're close enough. I don't I'm just shocked that there's not a, a stronger statement from the CFO of, like, everything has been resolved. Numbers, there won't be delay, you know. I think we're yeah. basically there. And to give some perspective, Revolut was valued at around $33 billion in its last funding round in 2021. Oh, they're one it, of the huge tech Uber unicorns, right? They're one Brit- of the top three or four. Yeah, you know. Britain's most valuable startup at the time. It's raised so far $1.7 billion. Of course, SoftBank is in there. SoftBank seems to be invested in all of these companies that have major problems, don't they? Well, it's this, it's this growth at all costs. Right, and yeah. when you have crazy fast growth, you lose control, and you have good systems in place, and uh, maybe the game is 
grow correctly instead yeah. of grow at all costs. Wow, that is nuts. Well, I've got one more story before we wrap things up, David, because we're about out of time. Um, Zero has announced oh, a good. new same story. Perfect. Okay, good. Zero has announced a new chief product officer. So this is replacing. Uh, was it Anna Curzon? Anna Curzon was the chief product officer who is taking a sabbatical as a result of personal and family health reasons. So this is very sudden. It wasn't planned. And they have brought on Dia Jolly as their new chief product officer, effective April 10th, 2023. Jolly comes to zero from Okta, where she was chief product officer responsible for leading product innovation for both its workforce and customer identity business. And then prior to that, Jolly was the VP of product management at Google, where she was focused on driving adoption for some of the company's leading products, including Google Home, Nest, YouTube monetization, and Gmail monetization. She has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a Bachelor of Engineering, Electrical Engineering, and Economics from the University of Michigan. The two monetization ones scare me a little bit because those bot models are basically watch what you're doing and sell you stuff. Right, like, yeah. look at the zero data and sell you stuff. Is what when I see those two sentences, that's what I see, and that's kind of it'll be interesting to see where that step is. And then zero also had a second announcement. I don't know if you if you saw that. There's a new note from zero's new CEO. Mm-hmm. So uh, and this is Sundunkar Singh Cassidy. So she wrote a new note and just gives a little bit about her background, which is great. Um, she was the daughter of two small business owners. And they've owned multiple small business owners or businesses as she was growing up. And she talks about how she used to handwrite entries into her father's ledger, right? And now she's working for this cloud company, right? And how far that's come. Now, she also is from Google as well. Mm. So there could be a the, – the, these things come and go like, or come and go, ebb and flow like this. Where I'll, I've seen this at Intuit where they, they're hiring a bunch of people from GE. Then – then it was the Microsoft kick, a lot of ex-Microsoft people, right? And so the, these companies, so right now, maybe the, the kick at zero is hire the, the Google people and we'll see where these things, but hopefully that, you know, as long as the core of a company stays, it doesn't matter these other cultures you bring in. Yeah, but it's temporary. I mean, the core of zero is definitely not that, right? The yeah. people who created zero did not come from Google or Microsoft and now they're bringing those people in and that could really change things potentially. Uh, and, you know, maybe they'll follow the Intuit strategy, which has always been to create all of these, you know, cross-sell opportunities to your customers. I mean, that's how Intuit's average revenue per customer gets into the hundreds of dollars per month, because not only do you buy QuickBooks, but you buy the payroll, you buy the merchant processing, you buy the, all the other stuff they offer, the MailChimp, whatever it is, right? Not the point of sale though. (laughs) Not the point of sale anymore. No, they gave up on that. Yeah. Well, David, uh, it's been a pleasure digging into the news with you on this episode. If our listeners want to follow you online, where should they go? I'm just at David Leary on all the socials. And if you send me a message on LinkedIn, please say you're not a bot because it is like at all-time highs again. Yeah. I am at Blake T. Oliver. You can email us, cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. Let us know what you think. You can send us a voicemail. Record a voice memo with your phone. Send it in. We'll listen to it. Uh, You can send us a Loom video too, something like that. We'll put you on our YouTube channel. Oh, and speaking of, do follow our YouTube channel. We are Cloud Accounting Podcast on YouTube. You can see what we look like. You can uh, figure out which one of us is which one of us. Um, And you can, if you subscribe, you can jump onto our live streams and chat with us. And uh, we love doing that. It's a lot of fun. Makes these recording sessions a whole lot more. 
exciting. And don't forget, you can earn free CPE for listening to these episodes. Download the Earmark CPE app on Google or Android. Get your free CPE for listening to podcasts. David, great to see you here. I'll see you again on... It's almost like, it's like we did a two and a half hour episode. I know, we right? These both together from Friday. But they're going to be good. Everybody like should be very happy with these two episodes. And we'll do a normal episode on Friday. Yeah. Oh, do we have a special we guest, have a guest. on the Friday one? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Follow us on YouTube, and you can join the live stream of our recording session with Paul Barnhurst, who is the host of uh, the FPNA Today podcast, uh, and is known as the FPNA guy. He is the all things. He is all things FPNA. So uh, join us then and, and learn what financial planning and analysis is, and how accountants can do better forward-looking financials. And any progress from AICPA representatives or NASBA representatives reaching out to you for contact? Yes. We are in touch with NASBA, and it's looking like we're going to get an interview with Ken Bishop, the – I think he's the chair of – I don't know if he's the president or the chair of NASBA, but he's he's the head honcho over at, at NASBA. Hey, we're yeah. getting somewhere. So I'm really excited uh, to talk to him. We'll get that set up, and that will be coming out as a, a portion of a Cloud Accounting Podcast episode or perhaps a bonus episode. Oh. All right. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, kids. Hit hit subscribe. Yeah, we got to remember to do this, David. If we're going to be YouTubers, we got to remind people constantly to hit smash subscribe. Smash that. Is it smash? Smash that subscribe button. Like and subscribe. All right. I'll see you later, David. Bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Client Hub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part that it's free. Introducing the free Client Hub Recategorized Plan. Client Hub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free Recategorized Plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award winning Client Hub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using Client Hub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to clienthub.app. That's clienthub.app. Check out Hector Garcia's new app called Write Tool for QuickBooks Online. Instantly increase your productivity with keyboard shortcuts and more. It will save you seconds. The app is free and offers a pro version with additional batching tools. Check them out at writetool.app. That's writetool.app, R-I-G-H-T-T-O-O-L dot app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www futurefirmaccelerate.com that's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com 
We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like CATs, and we love UNCAT. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using UNCAT. It's easy. UNCAT syncs with QuickBooks and gets clients' responses back so fast, you can close the books on time, every time. And you're going to love the price. UNCAT is just $5 per month per client. And bonus, start a 14-day free trial at uncat.com, and they'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. Get yours at uncat.com. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. Automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero, or Sage Business Cloud and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com that's www.nett-tracker.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.